We're surrounded by shit. Nothing new, I hear you say, but this time the cackistocracy of the conservative leadership race has been joined by literal sewage lapping at the shores of our green and pleasant land. Joining me to discuss the overwhelming stink of politics and our beaches, it's the radiant, the fragrant Moya Lothian McLean. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, I'm very excited to wade through the muck with you tonight. So, Liz Truss is almost guaranteed to be our next Prime Minister. A recent poll has put her 32 points ahead of Rishi Sunak, whose star seems all but extinguished. But why is Truss doing so well? Four words. Tories love tax cuts. It's a move that will benefit the poorest by roughly 79 pence per month, while putting hundreds of pounds into the pockets of the very richest. And you can see why that might work well with the Conservative base. But with public services in freefall and a recession on the cards, it hardly looks like a promising strategy for winning a general election. It's like the leadership race is taking place on another planet. And even some Tories seem completely mystified by her rise. In The Times, former Tory MP Matthew Paris wrote this. In Times columns, I've offered my first impressions of this candidate. They were that she was intellectually shallow, her convictions wafer thin, that she was driven by ambition pure and simple, that her manner was wooden and her ability to communicate convincingly to an electorate wider than the narrow band of Tory activists was virtually non-existent, that she was dangerously impulsive and headstrong with a self-belief unattended by precaution, and that her leadership of the Conservative Party and our country would be a tragedy for both. There's nothing there, I wrote last December. Nothing beyond a leaping self-confidence that's almost endearing in its wide-eyed disregard for the forces of political gravity. I likened any decision to follow Johnson with trust to the Donna kebab, which, after a night on the tiles, momentarily seems like a good idea, until you open the bread pouch. If these, my first impressions, were expressed extravagantly, they nevertheless reflected a judgment expressed more soberly by most political commentators, and I suggest felt by the majority of her fellow Tory MPs, for whom Sunak was plainly the preferred candidate. There was incredulity as to how she had got to where she was. After entertaining whether the journalists and politicians reassessing their estimation of trust, considering that she might actually be a steely strategist or a masterful communicator after all, Paris chooses to stick with his initial judgment. Liz Truss is a planet-sized mass of overconfidence and ambition teetering upon a pinhead of a political brain. It must all come crashing down. And... Look, I know that Matthew Paris is a diehard Tory, but I really do find myself agreeing with him. Liz Truss in her political career has been marked by gaffes and by U-turns. First, encouraging Brits to go over to fight in Ukraine before rapidly rowing back. Then afterwards, launching and then aborting policies from regional pay boards to promising no handouts when it comes to dealing with the cost of living crisis. So this kind of political acumen... Guess it's the kind of person you really want running the country in the middle of an energy crisis when inflation is threatening to hit 18% next year and millions are on the brink of poverty and all at a time when the Bank of England is forecasting a recession at any moment. So 
Moya, I'm inclined to agree with Matthew Paris that Liz Truss is not a particularly gifted politician, but am I missing something? Is there something which is particularly, I don't know, winning or charming or clever or insightful about her? I'll give you the short answer, which is no. Um, what we're looking at is the result of a binary choice being given to the Tory membership. A leadership contest is not reflective of how good a politician somebody is, in my opinion, and particularly not a Tory leadership contest. You are given the candidates who make it to the final round to vote on. So first, they have to go through the machinations of the internal party. And Liz Truss has got here because at the moment around her, are enough people who want to get on her horse and she's made enough friends in the current cabinet of horrors that she has the backing. She's up against Rishi Sunak, who is particularly unpopular because he served in Boris Johnson's cabinet. And I think it comes down to the fact there's only two people left. It's not saying that Liz Truss at large is popular because she's a gifted politician and these results do not, I don't think, confer any sort of positive advantage that Liz Truss has. In fact, if you look at sort of wider polling, Liz Truss is so unpopular you can't believe it. She's already as unpopular as Boris and he's, he was ousted from office just two months ago. The Times recently did an interesting poll of sort of floating Tory voters and they were part of the new Bring Back Boris movement where 49% of those polled wanted Boris to stay in office and out of the rest of them, 20% preferred Rishi Sunak over Liz Truss who only got about 18% of their imaginary vote. And when you look at comparisons between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, particularly, there's really not that much difference between them. She becomes more popular because people think that for some reason she's more honest and trustworthy out of the choice they are given, better in the economy. One poll for The Observer did have 2% people in the top five reasons of why they were voting for Liz Truss saying that she is white slash British slash English, which is a very telling answer. But I will say it again, it is because there are two candidates to choose from and Tory voters are picking out of that binary choice. Liz Truss at large is not popular, she's not talented and I think any cabinet or administration that she governs will come crashing down very quickly. I mean, I just don't think she's that bright, which is, I think, a bare minimum requirement for being Prime Minister. But, of course, no Prime Minister governs alone. She'll need a cabinet. So perhaps her plan is to assemble a team of bright sparks and superstars to help her turn the ship around. Well, no. For the first time, we have a sense of what a trust cabinet might look like after the Times published a well-briefed rundown of likely post holders. And it's not pretty. Buckle up. First up, Kwasi Kwarteng, who is pipped for the second biggest job in town, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Like Truss, the former business secretary is a free market Tory, and like Truss, who was recorded saying that British workers needed more graft, Kwarteng also believes we're all bone idle. Kwarteng, I'm hosting this right now, come on. Along with Truss and fellow right-wingers Priti Patel and Dominic Raab, Kwarteng co-authored the dystopian Britannia Unchained pamphlet in 2012. It's basically a user manual for maximum value extraction from Britain's workers, who they also describe as among the worst idlers in the world and who prefer a lion to hard work. Suella Braverman is apparently a done deal for Home Secretary, which is a pretty frightening thought. After she was made Attorney General in 2020, human rights groups as well as her barrister colleagues were alarmed. 
in 2019, she described the Conservatives as engaged in a battle against cultural Marxism. And when the anti-Semitic nature of the term was pointed out to her, she refused to retract it. She also voted against gay marriage, against a right to remain for EU citizens resident in the UK after Brexit, and for any number of reductions to welfare spending. Her bid to be Tory leader was pretty short-lived, but in her brief stint in the spotlight, she promised to expand the Rwanda scheme, exit the European Court of Human Rights, stigmatise trans people, and generally wage a war on wokeness. Then we've got James Cleverly, who appears to be Truss's pick for Foreign Secretary. And his success is as much of a mystery as Truss's. He started out as a member of the London Assembly, where he called for the minimum wage to be scrapped. And one of the first things he did after becoming an MP in 2015 was to vote against a Labour motion to force landlords to provide accommodation fit for human habitation. Only for it to turn out that he was a landlord all along. Since becoming an MP in 2015, he's had one junior ministerial role in the Foreign Office, tasked with the North Africa and Middle East brief. He was also co-chair of the Tory party in its peak Russian money years, perhaps giving him and Putin something to chat about. He's been education secretary in the defunct government that followed Johnson's resignation. Hardly a challenging role since they're doing absolutely nothing. And then we've got Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is likely to be Truss's pick for levelling up and housing secretary. Yeah, you heard that right. The multi-millionaire, eaten-educated, Victorian tough cosplayer is going to be in charge of developing economic prosperity for the regions outside of London and the Southeast. Mogg, who was formerly an investment banker and has a fortune of between 55 and 150 million pounds, has never been shy about expressing his views about working people. He supports zero-hours contracts and likes food banks, describing them as rather uplifting. And he previously criticised victims of the Grenfell Tower disaster for lacking common sense. Other potential picks are Therese Coffey for Chief Whip, Kemi Badenoch for Culture or Education Secretary, and Sajid Javid for Northern Ireland. Moya, what do you make of this cabinet of horrors? I almost don't want to consider it because... (laughs) It's wild to think that something could be worse than the gaggle of monstrosities that Boris Johnson assembled. But when you look at Liz Truss, she is basically Boris, but without any of the populist charm. She has the same incompetency, the same narcissism, the same self-serving, but she lacks also that cunning political instinct. She's very good at Instagram and photo ops, but she doesn't seem to have Boris's quite his self-preservation in the same way. She's managed to sort of get where she is now by glomming onto the ideological trend of the day. But she doesn't really, I don't think, have a clear ethos and she doesn't know how to switch positions well enough that it's not obvious she doesn't know what she's doing. As I said before, I think her prospective reign will end in disaster one of two ways. She's already hugely unpopular. The Tories are running out of roads. She either she'll limp along until the next general election or... And I think this is actually quite probable, knowing Liz Truss. She'll do the thing that no one expects and let the ego go to her head and call a snap general election. And then I think she'll be ousted. And unfortunately, that means she'll be ousted probably by Labour, unless some mad coalition comes along. But yeah, she'll be ousted by Labour. And that will then further reinforce Labour's idea that policies that they're spearheading are somehow good and the public wants them when really they've won by default. Next story. It's perhaps a too perfect metaphor for national decline driven by corporate negligence, 
British coastlines are literally swimming in shit after private water companies pump sewage overflows near dozens of beaches in England and Wales. Pollution warnings were issued for popular swimming spots like Southend-on-Sea, Bognor Regis and Newquay. In East Sussex, raw sewage was pumped into the sea at Seaford, a marine protected area intended to protect wildlife and fragile habitats. And on Friday, it emerged that every single beach between Brighton and Hastings was polluted with sewage. Gross. Southern Water, which manages water services for Kent, Hampshire, Sussex and the Isle of Wight, argued that discharges like these were necessary after recent heavy rains threatened to flood homes and businesses. What's more, Southern Water said that it was wrong to call the mix of water, feces and urine pumped into British waterways raw sewage. In a statement released to the media, they reassured the public that the release is 95 to 97% rainwater. I guess that means that if a bartender served Southern Water CEO Lawrence Gosden a pint that was only 3 to 5% human excrement, he'd have no grounds to kick up a fuss. And look, you can see why the lads at Southern Water would be inclined to look on the bright side of sewage discharges. As beaches across England fought off a tidal wave of toilet paper and used condoms, it emerged last Friday that water company bosses saw a 20% increase to their annual bonuses last year. The Guardian reported that figures show on average executives received £100,000 in one-off payments on top of their salaries during a period in which foul water was being pumped for 2.7 million hours into England's rivers and swimming spots. The analysis of water companies' annual reports found that their bonus pool for executives now stands at more than £600,000 a company on average. In total, the 22 water bosses paid themselves £24.8 million, including £14.7 million in bonuses, benefits and incentives in 2021-2022. So, water bosses are awarding themselves bonuses which are worth more than three times the average wage, all while happily missing their target for what's considered a reasonable amount of shit to pump in our waterways. And that's not all. According to an analysis of environment agency data conducted by the Lib Dems, water companies aren't even monitoring how much effluvia they're dumping into rivers and seas. Up to half of all the devices meant to measure sewage discharges either haven't been installed or don't work 90% of the time. And you can see the worst offenders here. As this graphic from the BBC shows, nearly half of all Anglian Waters monitoring devices are either faulty or non-existent. And they were also responsible for nearly a quarter of all serious pollution incidents in 2021. So, you'll be pleased to hear that Anglian Waters chief exec, Peter Simpson, landed bonuses worth over £750,000 as part of a £1.3 million pay package. Moya, water companies have turned beauty spots into literal rivers of shit, all while helping themselves to absolutely outrageous bonuses. Why aren't CEOs more frightened of being dunked headfirst into septic tanks? Uh, In answer to that, I'm going to quote an awful man because sometimes the worst person you know makes a great point. So in 1884, Joseph Chamberlain said while arguing for the nationalization of water and sewage systems that it is difficult, if not impossible, to combine the citizens' rights and interests 
and the private enterprise interests because the private enterprise aims at its natural and justified objective, the biggest possible profit. They're not having their heads dunked in sewage because they're private companies and they're operating exactly as privatized monopolies will to cut operating costs and increase profits. Their obligation is to the shareholder and the shareholder only. I would love to know what interests and links politicians have to these big water companies. But, you know, England is, I think, the only country in the world, apparently, where we have fully privatized water supply. You know, Wales now has a privatized water supply, but the company is not for profit. There are no shareholders. Scotland has public ownership. When they privatized them in 1989, they sold off these 10 major water companies. And now 90% of them are owned by foreign shareholders. And the average pay for a CEO is 1.7 million a year. They're getting paid that because they're doing things like sewage dumping, because they are cutting the operating costs. The point is not to um, benefit the consumer. The point is to make as big a profit as possible at at low operating costs as possible. And while they're doing that, they will continue to see these dividends. As somebody that I talked to earlier said in relation to something else, they're incentivized to shit on the general public. Yeah, I mean, I think that's about right. But look, shit on the beaches isn't exactly politically popular. And the combination of sewage stench and public outcry has prompted a chorus of concerned noises from Tory MPs in affected constituencies. Here's what Sally Ann Hart, MP for Hastings, said on Twitter. I am appalled by the latest sewage discharges into bathing waters in the local area, and Southern Water must be held to account for this threat to both public health and marine life. Today, in conjunction with my MP colleagues across Sussex, we have written to the responsible bodies calling for a meeting in Parliament and demanding that our waterways and coast are respected and protected. Hmm. Wouldn't be this Sally Ann Hart by any chance. Back in October 2021, Sally Ann Hart voted against an amendment which would have made water companies legally responsible for dumping sewage into rivers and seas via combined sewer overflows. And the vote came seven weeks after companies were told by the government they could release untreated sewage directly into waterways because of a shortage of chemicals caused by the lorry driver crisis. It does seem that Sally Ann felt vaguely ashamed of having voted with the government whip at the time, After voting down the amendment, she released a defensive statement claiming it would have simply been too expensive to clean up the sewers. However, the figure cited by Sally Ann Hart and other coastal Tory MPs was seemingly cribbed straight from the water company's lobbying group. And obviously, they're going to say it's totally unfeasible to make them stop pumping shit into rivers. It's in their economic interest to sacrifice the environment so they don't have to invest in better infrastructure. I mean, Moya, Sally Ann Hart isn't the only Tory MP to have voted against cutting sewage dumping and now be aghast at the present state of British beaches. Do you think that this is going to hurt them at the ballot box? I think that's a difficult question because every time I think something's going to hurt politicians at the ballot box, the electorate immediately forgets about it. I do think the question of water and the state of pollution in our water is becoming ever more present, the more that we're getting extreme weather conditions, whether that is flooding, especially flooding that causes sewage to rise up and flood the streets, or 
extreme heat where you're seeing thousands of people flocking to their nearest swimming spots, rivers, et cetera, in the hopes of cooling down. And, you know, there's an absolute crisis in the provision of public swimming pools, um, that especially ones that are affordable. So more and more, you, this is coming up. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a story that has been around for quite a while has now got so much attention on it, just as we're having an extremely hot summer. And people are starting to think again, hang on a minute, why can't I go down to the local river or the local pool and swim in that? Oh, it turns out there's a load of shit in it. Mm, who knew? Well, it, I think journalists have actually known this for quite a while. The story has rumbled on and on. There's been pollution issues and with companies since before privatization. In 1998, the infamous Camelford water disaster saw, was like Britain's, I think it was England's actually, it was Britain's, Britain's worst mass poisoning. And it's all potentially up to 20,000 people exposed to contaminated water. Later, there were lots of unexplained deaths. Somebody died from a specific condition, which was directly linked to this water. But still, there haven't really been the investigations and answers into that. And they think that that wasn't investigated properly because at the time, they were trying to push through the privatization of water companies. And if it had come to light that this water company had completely messed up and then they would not have pushed that through and been able to push that through in the same way because of the political taint that would have been attached to it. So in terms of the ballot box, it depends how much A, the media and B, opponents hammer this home. But I do think people are thinking more about it. I'm certainly at home going, you know, why is water in such a state? Why is it so disgusting? Why have we let this happen for so long without getting angry about it? But as with anything, momentum has to be maintained. And if there is a new story that comes along that people are outraged about, maybe it won't factor in as much. However, it adds to the general miasma, forgive the pun, of discontent that is surrounding both the Tories and these big energy companies, water companies, privatized companies, these things that used to be in public service, now privatized. The discontent is really building and the pressure, I think, is on in a way it hasn't been for a very long time. It seems to me that the interlocking crises that we face have something in common, and that is a failure to invest because profits have been extracted rather than being put back into developing and improving infrastructure. You see that in terms of water and pumping raw sewage into the sea. You see that in terms of the failure to build a single new reservoir in England since the privatization of the water companies. You see it in the failure to invest in gas storage. You see it in the failure to properly invest in the railways outside of, of course, HS2. I mean, Moya, don't you think that this opens up a space politically for the Labour Party? Keir Starmer can stick his smiling face over posters which say Labour will invest in X. It will improve all of these public services which are falling to pieces. I mean, it opens up a space politically for the Labour Party, but it also opens up a space politically for anybody who supports nationalisation, which isn't just left-wing voters. Nationalisation, when you present it to people as a sort of common sense approach, they go, yeah, yeah, that's really good. But then when you talk about it in terms that they would recognize as sort of left wing, they get more scared. But nationalization is not an unpopular policy. That's known. I think, yes, of course, it means that the Labour Party could take advantage of it. Will they? I'm not sure. However, what we're seeing now is sort of burgeoning parallel mass movements in the form of sort of don't pay, enough is enough. And the rhetoric sounding things like that will definitely feed into, again, this conversation around nationalization. These big companies that should be in public ownership but aren't, these services all the public are crumbling. 
they've been given years and years and years to try and turn this around or at least make even a superficial show of investing on behalf of consumers into the kind of infrastructure you're talking about. And they haven't done it. They're not going to do it. They don't have any incitement to do it. So we should take it away from them. We should renationalize. That's the answer. Instead, with the Tory government, especially, what you've got is them doing sort of, you know, nationalization of the railways, but really, again, just franchising these out in private contracts that are overseen by sort of a national body. It, it makes absolutely no sense. It's one of those classic, we desperately still want to keep into this theory, this ideology, this neoliberal, no, 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 private does work, I swear. Well, it hasn't worked. It's not going to work. So if the Labour Party don't make the argument for nationalization when there is such an opportunity and appetite, someone else will. And then they will be sorry because either they're going to get outflanked by someone populist on the right who's suddenly been like, hmm, but we could nationalize. And actually, this is why it's really right wing. Or they're going to get outflanked by a burgeoning sort of coalition on the left, which could really tank them. They've lost over, what, 100,000 members? They're bankrupt. Unless they buck their ideas up, that's, that trend is going to continue. This is a very easy sort of opportunity to score, but they might turn around and put it in the back of their own net instead of the opponents. Next story. The hot strike summer is well underway. In just the last few days, we've seen rail, bus and London Underground workers walk out. BT workers will go on strike later in the month. And a massive 115,000 Royal Mail workers will also walk out after they were offered a pathetic 2% pay rise. All of this is in the shadow of rising inflation, which is set to hit 18% in January. That's according to Citibank. And if that's right, it'll be the highest rate we've seen in over 40 years. It's no surprise that even more strikes have been announced. Criminal barristers in England and Wales have been striking on alternate weeks since June. But now they have voted to go on strike indefinitely from September the 5th. They've been calling on the government to increase legal aid payments that fund much of their work. That's after barrister pay dropped by 28% in the last 15 years, resulting in junior barristers fleeing the profession and leading to a massive backlog in court cases. University workers are threatening a new round of strikes after it emerged that British universities have stockpiled a £3.4 billion surplus and rather spending this money on staff to help them offset the rising cost of living, they plan to invest it in flash new buildings. The University and Colleges Union is calling for an RPI plus 2% pay increase for staff, but bosses have offered just 3% across the board. According to the UCU, university staff have seen a 25% real terms cut over the last decade. Meanwhile, workers at Felixstowe Port have entered their second day of strike action. 2,000 Unite the Union members have downed tools for a total of eight days, threatening to disrupt supplies of imported goods across the UK. Felixstowe, just for a bit of context, deals with 48% of all UK container shipments and the strike could cost the economy $800 million. Yet the port's owner, Felixstowe Dock and Railway Company, has refused to negotiate. This is despite parent company CK Hutchinson Holdings Limited making £2 billion in profit in the first six months of this year. And right across Scotland, bin workers will walk out again in a series of rolling strikes. They began last Thursday when workers represented by Unite Down Tools in Edinburgh and they'll be followed by GMB and Unison members in the coming weeks. 
That's after council bosses offered these essential service workers an insulting 3.5% rise. But the Edinburgh strikes have also coincided with the Edinburgh Fringe, leading to scenes of visitors, lovies, and residents trying to keep the place tidy. But the point of staging the strike in the middle of the festival is to pressure the government with a threat of international embarrassment. And look, I, I get the urge to keep things clean, but isn't doing the striking bin workers' jobs scabbing? And in a stroke of supreme irony, it's been announced that journalists at the Daily Express will walk out over pay and conditions too. Their strike begins on Friday. Here's an example of the kind of stuff that Express journalists like to publish. Nothing off the table to crush strike action. That was one of the headlines. But look, I guess everybody needs to make a buck. So while we disagree with the politics they promote, we still offer the Express Hacks our unflinching solidarity, even for the guy whose job it is to write a scathing news story every time I tweet a joke. They'll be joining journalists from Across the Reach Group, a massive newspaper group that owns 240 local newspapers across the country, as well as the Daily Mirror and Daily Star. The CEO of Reach, Jim Mullen, took home £4 million last year, but all he offered workers on his papers was a pathetic 3% rise. Moya, isn't there a certain irony in journalists for a Tory-supporting paper having to go on strike because their bosses are ideologically opposed to inflation-matching pay rises? Serendipitously, I was actually working on a report about the Reach PLC strikes today. It's out tomorrow for anyone who'd like to read it. And yeah, of course, there's a certain irony. But as you said earlier, we should extend our solidarity to all striking workers. What is really important here, and when you speak to people across these papers, is the pay offers that they have been getting and the pay offers that they have been, I would say, pressured into accepting at times are absolutely minuscule. You know, this is a paper, this is a publishing company that doesn't direct the editorial lines of the individual papers. And while I'm completely opposed to what The Express publishes, I still support the right of the workers there to engage in industrial action in order to get a better pay deal. That can only be a good thing. That only undermines the message that is being sent out by the editorial main lines. And then you look at the Mirror, for example. They're a paper on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Their policy, I was told by a journalist there today, is we support all strikers. Yet, when it comes to Reach PLC paying these workers a fair wage in rise with inflation, their company has completely failed to do that. And, you know, this was one journalist telling me how ridiculous it is that they have to sit in the office and write these stories about fat cat bosses and, you know, cost of living crisis and which companies have been good to their workers, which companies have been bad when they are about to go on strike in order to battle for an 8.5% pay rise, which no longer even matches the inflation that it did back in December. And other things about Reach PLC is Reach PLC recently closed all but 15 of their newsrooms. They're the biggest regional publisher in Britain, and they've closed all but 15 of their newsrooms, which means, in effect, they have passed a lot of overheads onto their journalists. If you are not at a local newsroom and you don't have access to, say, using that electricity or being fed in the canteen, you are also facing increased costs because you have to stay home and you're using the energy there. When you're in a cost of living crisis, that further puts pressure on your household finances and Reach have not offered anything 
to help with this, nothing constructive, not even referenced it. Instead, things that they have offered are, for example, workshops on side hustles. I've heard stories about workers who at Reach who've had to take second jobs because Reach contracts prohibit you from doing freelance writing on the side unless you go through a lengthy permission process. Obviously, no person should really have to do a second job in order to get a fair wage. You should be able to engage in one form of employment that pays you a fair wage if you want to, is my opinion. However, if you're doing a second job as a journalist, it makes sense that you are able to do something like freelance writing, like copywriting, etc. Reach journalists can't do this. So instead, they've been pushed into debt. They've been taking second jobs like bar work, I've heard, Etsy sellers, photographers, and the younger journalists who in London start out on 22k salaries and outside in the regional areas, they start on lower than that. It's usually about 19,720 19, pounds. They are getting into debt. They're taking out credit cards. They're literally getting into debt just to do their jobs. And I think it's probably quite easy for the public to look at the Express, et cetera, and think, oh, you know, this anti-union paper is taking, it's actual journalists behind the scenes are striking for pay. And yes, it is very ironic. And yes, it's, you know, hypocritical to farm that stuff out and do this. But at the same time, I do think that's actually an overall win for the power of industrial organizing. And what I've also heard is that this has really galvanized NUJ members within reach. So they've had like over 200 new members since these negotiations started from Reach PLC joining the NUJ. And what's interesting is there's other unions as well present within Reach PLC. There's the BAJ. They already accepted the 3% pay offer, but the NUJ members haven't. And they're saying, we're not going to settle for this. We're going to go harder and we're going to push until we get the pay that we deserve to maintain our living standards. And honestly, best of luck to them. Next story. Meritocracy. It's the belief that people should rise as high in the world as their talents deserve. And it's a word totally unfamiliar to the Johnson family. Rachel Johnson, the Prime Minister's sister, was joined on her LBC show by geriatric Nepo Baby and father of Boris, Stanley Johnson, to give their verdict on the disgusting state of England's water companies. Who is at fault? For this happening. You've talked about the environmental European framework, which we've slightly stepped away from, even though the Tory government said that we would meet all those standards. So is it the water companies, as Emma Howard Boyd says, or is it the is it the Tory government which hasn't actually made enough of this illegal? I, w- I would say we have to blame the government for not pressing this matter as hard as he should have done. And of course, absent the EU push as well, you can understand how the government has felt able to, you know, to not push this thing as he should have pushed. So there we have the Prime Minister's sister asking the Prime Minister's dad whether the fact our seas are full of sewage is the government's fault. It is, they say, without ever mentioning the name of the person who runs it. And look, I'm sure Rachel and Stanley feel certain they've pulled themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps, but it's hard to imagine that they would have had a fraction of the prominence and access to platform that they enjoy now were it not for their dear relatives' ascent up the political greasy pole. We can blame Southern Water and all the rest of them for the river of shit polluting our seas. But it's the private school to halls of power pipeline that we have to thank for the posh flotsam we have clogging up parliament and the press. I can't stand 
the private education system. And I think that if we were a serious country, if we meant what we say about the value of hard work and talent, we simply wouldn't have it. And I don't think that private schools produce an elite class of intellects who are more deserving of prominence or of being trusted with power. And you only have to listen to Rachel Johnson, Stanley Johnson, and indeed Boris Johnson for that to be proved time and again. I mean, you listen to Stanley Johnson talk and he is a terrible speaker. And I'm not saying, oh, it's, you know, stumbling over words or these things, which are just really human things to do. He's saying nothing of value. It's just like there are all these like pound coins falling out of his mouth. It's like, oh, 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 oh. And nothing makes sense. There is no quality information which is actually being divulged. And I come away from it feeling stupider than I was before I watched him be interviewed on LBC. And that for me is the problem with private schools, is that they exist purely to catapult the undeserving to positions that they would never have attained if they were being judged on their own merit. But look, maybe that's a show for another day. Thank you for joining me, Moya. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the lengthy discussions about shit and I can't wait to come back and talk about it all again another day. (laughs) Look, I told you, it's a great metaphor for where we are as a country. And of course, if you want to support quality metaphors, go to univaramedia.com forward slash support and become one of our monthly supporters. Every single penny helps us grow and cover the news with the kinds of analysis that you just won't get anywhere else. Thanks to all of you for tuning into our show this evening. I've been Ash Sarka covering for Michael Walker. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.